Hello and welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club episode 15, the podcast that asks the hard questions about leadership. So here we are again, Ben, how are you today? Hi Ian, I'm really good, thank you. Pleased to be here with you and our listeners and can't wait to get into our topic. Excellent, good. Well, it's another interesting one, I think, and an essential question for leaders, of course. In a week, we've got 168 hours and the central question we're going to be talking about is how do effective leaders spend their time? What do they do in those 168 hours? But before we get into the substance of this, and a few models and hints and tips and et cetera, et cetera, a bit of research thrown in, no doubt. Ben, what have you noticed recently that you want to talk about today? It's a question, Ian. A question has got my attention. This question is from a chap called Pat Murray. Pat is a leadership coach in America, works with founders, teams at the top in various companies. I came across a bit of writing by Pat and it's called The Essence of Leadership, The Inside Moves. Mm. And I like how it begins. Pat writes that leadership consists of inside moves and outside moves. The outside moves, all the things you do that are readily visible and observable, your leadership style, meetings you attend, where your time and attention goes, etc. And the inside moves, they're invisible or less visible, but they're what separate great leaders from all the rest. Now, inside moves, outside moves reminds me of the inner game uh, and the outer game, which is a concept from Timothy Galway. Timothy Galway was a tennis coach, I'm guessing 40 years ago, around about then, and one of the first people to bring coaching from the world of sports into the world of business and organisations. And Tim Galway, he talks about the inner game and the outer game. He would say, the outer game is played on an external arena to overcome external obstacles to reach an external goal. The inner game takes place within the mind of the player and is played against such obstacles as fear, self-doubt, lapses in focus and limiting concepts or assumptions. Mm. And of course, as leaders, we have inner games as well. We play against those same obstacles. And I think this is what Pat Murray is talking about too. And of course, the inner game is also about questions such as our personal why and our organizational why. What's the reason at the heart of our leadership? The reason at the heart of our team, our companies? And Pat Murray goes on to talk, first of all, about the outside moves. This is the bit that got my attention. Pat describes a situation. Now, remember he's a coach. He describes working with a client, an owner of a large real estate firm, and he describes a situation in which one day the chief exec of this real estate firm was complaining. He was complaining that one of his divisional managers was wrecking the firm. He was driving business, but destroying good people in the process. Hmm. The chief exec, he was agitated by this. He tried various things, but the manager refused to change his behavior. He carried on. And um, 
we all recognize this, right? These are the sort of tricky, high stakes situation that come up. Pat asked the CEO a question. It's a great question. And it's a question that any leader can, and I think probably should keep in mind. And the question he asked is this, what story would you like told about you regarding this situation? Mm, Well, that's a great one. That's a killer question, isn't it? Really causes you to, to step back and change perspective. How are others going to see this? How are they going to see this? What does it say about me? What does it say about us? Just a killer question. What story would you like told about you regarding this situation? That's one of the best questions I've heard, actually. I love it. It reminds me of the sort of 80th birthday speech when you're describing your life, looking back on it from 80, and what story would you really like to be said over the whole of your life? But this brings it right down to very actionable now. You know, the things we're doing now, the tricky things we're grappling with as leaders. Ask yourself that question. Every time you're dealing with a thorny issue, what story would you like said about you in the way you've dealt with this what a great question super isn't it super what's got your attention well it's the power of a smile and yeah yeah so i've been doing a, a, a bit of research i did a bit of research a while ago for my book and i was looking at happiness this whole subject of happiness and i came across a bit of research about the smile and about a fake smile versus a genuine smile And Mm -hmm. a genuine smile was first written about by a chap called Ghislaine Duchesne, uh, called a Duchesne smile. That's a genuine smile. And what makes it a genuine smile? Well, in addition to enlarging your cheeks and exposing your teeth, which is what we do, and that's voluntary, and that can be on its own a fake smile, You've got an involuntary thing that happens, which is you've got wrinkles on the outer edges of your eyes and your eyes close up. And put those Mm -hmm. two together and you get a genuine smile. And where you've got the former just exposing the teeth, but not much happens to the eyes, it's pretty much a fake smile. And the interesting about this, so there were two psychologists called Keltner and Harker who looked at some class photographs of 114 women back in 1960, They were at Mills College, University of California. They were doing this research in 1990. And they looked at these photographs, there were 141 photographs they analyzed, and three of the women were not smiling. And of the rest, 50 were genuine Duchesne smiles, and the rest were fake smiles. Mm -hmm. So they said, Mm -hmm. okay, then they, they looked at these women and they assessed how they had gone through their lives in the period from 1960 to 1990. And they looked at them at three different stages. And what they found out was those who had had genuine smiles had longer, more satisfying marriages and higher personal well-being. Now, hmm. that in itself, you think, wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. But what do we take from that? Well, what we take from that and what came out in the research paper, which is fascinating, is when you have a genuine smile, you are feeling a positive emotion. When you've got a fake smile, you're not. You're just putting a fake smile on. 
So there's no, there's no real emotion behind it. There's no feeling behind it. It's just a fake smile. A genuine smile, yeah. positive emotions, allow you to foster a creative thinking. We know from other pieces of information about how you create great brainstorms and creative thinking in rooms is you get people having fun. And that's one of the ways you do that. The other things it does, it allows you to be much more ready to take advantage of opportunities, which is another interesting thing about showing emotion. It strengthens social bonds between people. And the last thing they found out was it actually suppresses negative emotions. So the more positive emotions you're showing, the more genuine smiling you're doing, the less negative emotions come through. And of course, one of the things about all this is the fact that when you come in as a room as a leader, you infect people with your mood, with your smile, with how you show up. Mm -hmm. And so all this is very infectious. You know, you and I coming into a room, smiling, having that intent, if you like, which we spoke about in the last podcast, really has an effect on the room. And therefore you can have an effect on your culture, you can have effect on your creativity, the readiness of your people to take opportunities, the strengthening of the social bonds within your business, and less negativity around. So a fascinating piece of research. Loved it, really loved it, and it made me really think about real Duchesne, genuine smiling, which I'm trying to do more of as a result. Nice. And leadership is contagious, so what do you want people to catch amuses me that that line leadership is contagious and what do you want people to catch if we're in a good place mm. you know we we've got a ready Duchenne smile if we're not in a good place we get that forced smile and yeah how, how do we close that how do we close that gap and you've got me thinking about stress in business and burnout at at work and I mentioned it a couple of podcasts ago i'm reading right now perform under pressure by dr kerry evans uh, who did a bunch of work with the the all blacks and with mercedes formula one mm. and it's a great book a model all around whether we're thinking with our red emotional brain or our blue rational brain and i think we've said we'll build a podcast episode mm. around performing under pressure it's a brilliant book one of the things talked about is freeze, fight, flight mm -hmm. reaction. And, you know, when we hear about it, you know, we, we think about, at least I do, being cornered and, and walking through the, the jungle and passing around a big tree trunk and coming face to face with a tiger or a snake or something like that. It conjures up that sort of image, doesn't it? At least does yeah. for, for me. I think for me for a long time and for so many people, it was really tough to translate the concepts of freeze, fight, flight, those reactions, those primal reactions, into our business setting. Mm. But in this book, just one of the many bits I really like, he just says, in business, in our professional lives, where there are no tigers in the building, there are no poisonous snakes in the building, the way that fight, flight, freeze shows up and he's got an acronym, APE, is aggression, passivity, and escape. Mm. And oh my goodness, do I see that easily mm. around the workplace. 
around a meeting room table in a Zoom in a conference call. Aggression, somebody going a little bit too far with fighting their corner. In fact, they showed up in that way. Aggression, passivity, the person who doesn't participate and their seat is pushed back from the table and their arms are folded and, you know, you get the odd grunt from them and that's about all you're getting. They're being passive. And escape. Actually, I'm going to show up late. I'm not going to show up. I've got something more important. I'm not coming to this meeting. And, And suddenly... You can see all these behaviours and it's worth stopping. And, you know, have we got somebody here who their mindset is in fright, flight or flight? Mm. Because if we have, they're not resourceful. Mm. They're not in a good place. They might burn out. What might they do in the in the short term? Mm. And uh, but I thought of mm. it because they're definitely not going to give us a Duchenne smile. No, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because is that a temporary state or is that a sort of fairly permanent state for that person? Because, of course, you can get... You know, yeah, you can get question. pessimists, you can get people who are just mood hoovers, as we call them. Or you can get somebody who's actually, you know, pretty good when they come to work. They, they bring their whole self, their glass half full, they're optimistic, but they're having a hard day. And I think so. Uh, there are lots of ways of, and I'm drawing on people like Sean Aker now, you know, the positive psychologists, lots of ways of creating a positive, happy mind. I'll give you three examples of those. And these are behaviours you can ingrain in yourself. And those those behaviours then can, can become more habitual. So you can sort of help them go through a business. One of them uh, we've heard a lot about, which is write down three things you're grateful for before you go to bed and make that the last thing you do at night. Why is that important? Because you think about the things in your life that are good forces you to do that. It's There's another one similar to that, which is journaling or blogging about positive experiences. When you force your mind to think positively, you relive that experience. It's a bit like showing somebody a photograph of a holiday. You relive the experience as you show them yep. your photograph. So a journaling, blogging about positive experience, again, it puts you in the right kind of mind. Random acts of kindness. We know, you know, you speak to people, you go out of your way to speak to people and say, how's your day? And actually talk to them in the checkout queue at Waitrose or Tesco. And, you know, it lifts them because they're not used to that. They're used to the the people just asking for a a plastic bag, which they don't want to give out in the first place because it kills the planet. And somebody wants it. Well, it's not just the two people doing that or put in a better frame of mind. It's anyone witnessing it. Goes back to our infection. You know, leaders are infectious. So there are a whole bunch of things here, I think, about creating a happy, positive mind. There's lots of stuff out there which we can do and we can incorporate into our into our days which set us up for a much better day you know meditation yoga all that kind of stuff sharing our issues leaders showing their care for people at work and so on tons of tons, tons of stuff yeah there. yeah and happily psychology in the the recent 15 20 years positive psychology has has emerged and we're learning about this quickly aren't we some great things we can do there ian but here's a yeah. question uh, and it's it's kind of almost a real-time question. I was walking the other day with a founder, company founder, that that I work with. We live close to each other. We, we met for our outdoor exercise. We kept a good distance, so we've been very responsible. And we walked and we talked. And one of his questions was, you know, as, as a leader... How holistic is my responsibility to each of my people? And if I've got somebody who I can see they're performing fine at work, Mm. but they're not in a great place, 
and there's other stuff going on for them perhaps or we figure there must be because they're not their normal selves but they're doing okay at work where do we draw the line what is our responsibility to holistically take care of them and either find out and help tackle those other things or do something less direct to support them or in fact is that none of our business and if they're performing well at work and if they've not put this on the table we know where the line is drawn what's your yeah, view on it's that it's a great well it's, a, it's kind of a quite a common leadership dilemma i think and it's a great question and that, that this chap asked i think you can only go so far I think we do, you know, there's lots of research, uh, isn't there, about really understanding people on a personal level so you can motivate them, so you can show you care for them. So I think there's this, you know, building up that vulnerability-based trust, that that courage and emotional exposure, as Brené Brown talks about. I think that's really the right thing to do for people, to make them, you know, feel that they're wanted at work, they're cared for at work, they can share stuff. And all that leads to proper conversations and getting to the heart of the issue and all that. So it has a real productive output in terms of what you're trying to create in a business. I think the question you're asking and the, and the person you're with was asking was, you know, if this, I can only go so far and how far do I go? And if I'm looking holistically at the whole business, then can I let one person kind of disrupt to take too much of my time or disrupt other people in the business? And I think the danger is as a leader, if we see somebody who's not on their A game or has never been on their A game or it's just, you know, just way off the, off the piste for too long, people start looking at us and saying, how are we addressing this? How are we coping with this? Are we, are we addressing this at all? Because as we, as we keep saying, people influence other people. And if you've got one person in your business who is draining the mood or is feeling negative, you know, is actively disengaging, then it spreads that discontent. It spreads that amongst the people they're working with. So it, it comes on leaders to say, you know, there's a line here in the sand. I think we've got to draw and say, I'm only going to take it so far with you. So are you saying that the determining factor is whether or not that person is beginning to negatively impact or undermine the team, the company? I think that's way? one of them. I think the the key the thing I always say is we don't owe anyone a job. We don't as leaders we don't owe anyone a job. Our organizations are there, you know, to fulfill uh, a mission, a vision, all the things we talked about in the, in the last podcast and to employ people, develop them, grow them, get the most out of them on that journey with us. If one of them isn't isn't happy, maybe they're in the wrong organization, maybe they're in the wrong job. We need to understand that and we need to talk to them. So it could be an individual thing, but certainly if they're affecting other people around them, and then I think it becomes a big issue for the organization and about how you're viewed as a leader, how your credibility stands up to letting somebody kind of get away with a behavior that isn't, you know, what you want to see around the business. Yeah, okay. I thought of it differently, Ian. And, you know, one, one part of the answer is perhaps there's something here about the individual culture of our organization. Do we have a culture that looks after its people holistically? And if we do, what does that look like? And how do people understand that? Because of course, that makes it safe and expected and normal and easier. Or do we have a culture that 
that mm. doesn't do that and draws you know, a very clear line and draws that line close to the performance of the business. And again, everyone knows where they stand, including the individuals and the leaders. So that was one thing. And if I think of this in the context of a team, and in a way we're getting mm. into the topic of today's podcast with this, as a leader in a team, I'm responsible for the team. I'm responsible for each person and each person having the conditions for success. You know, if we think of the, the dream teams, the really high-performing teams, teams that knock it out of the park, teams in sport quite often, if there's something else going on for somebody and it's nothing to do with the team, but it's hurting them and they're unable to show up with you know all of their normal passion and brilliance and resourcefulness the team absolutely gets behind that and helps sort out whatever it might be for for that person and they and they look after the person so in that sense i think absolutely there could be a responsibility and it could be valid to get involved and do you know what i think there's a lot we can be doing as we develop our teams are we giving them good tools that enable them to perform well at work but also in the rest of their life too. Perform Under Pressure, the book that I'm I'm talking about, just a simple good example, a ton, a, you know, a ton of uh, good ideas, usable, relatable ideas that would have any one of us perform well in our roles and probably even more applications in the rest of our life as, as well. So if you like, we can develop each of our people at work in a way that is going to help them massively out of work as well yeah you're absolutely right ben and i think uh, that's what we're doing isn't it you know the the one of the most important things a leader can do is build another leader is can grow a person to achieve their potential and that's not just growing their ability to perform at work that's that's making them a better person you know if you look at any of the great sports coaches you know you look at eddie jones and he talks about the england rugby team he's trying to make them into better people he wants he wants really nice people, really good people in his in his team, and I think we do have as leaders. You know, there is there is something that we must do to to help people grow and develop as people. But that's that's part of a great leader, and of course you can't disassociate, or you shouldn't. You know, developing a person and developing a great a great performer at, at work. One goes hand in hand with the other and one supports the other. So if you're building a, a happy, motivated person who feels fulfilled every day personally, they're going to give much better performance at work and they're going to thank you and they're going to stay there longer. And, and so I think this is, you know, I was, I was talking to some people this morning about, you know, the Lencioni model. And that starts, doesn't it, with this kind of open up, be vulnerable, get the trust, understand people, really understand people, care for people, show you care, and then you get the challenge and then you get the commitment and the accountability and so on and so forth. And so I think these things wrap around each other. And it's a great debate to have. We've probably gone on for too long, in a sense. But but hey, we've got we're kind of going into this area about what leaders do anyway, aren't we? Yeah, we are. So 168 hours what effective leaders do? That's the question. So, well, as I tell you what prompted this in me, which, which was a book and, and, a, and a Harvard Business Review article by John Cotter. The Harvard Business Review article is called What Effective General Managers Really Do. 
the article focused on some research they had done of effective leadership. And I thought it was fabulous because what it looked at was, and I think, sure, they changed the name, a chap called Michael Richardson, who was a general manager in a big business, a very effective general manager. And what they did is they followed him over mm. a 24-hour period to see how he spent his time. And so what did they show? Well, they showed that he came to work reasonably early. He sat down with his assistant and they went through the diary. And then he started going to a succession of meetings. Now, that, none of that's unusual so far, is it? But what he did do is he made sure he touched base with people top to bottom in his organization and side to side. So that was the first lesson. You know, you've got to get out there. You've got to walk, walk the corridors and yep. see people. The second thing I found fascinating, it was that this person never attended or rarely attended the whole of a meeting. So they would know that they're attending a meeting, say the operations team, for example, and they turn up and because they're the general manager, people uh -huh. would kind of kowtow to them and look across at them and see what they were going to say. So this chap, Michael Richardson, would walk in and say, right, who's running this meeting? And somebody would say, you know, Sarah, for the sake of a name, would say, oh, I'm running this meeting. He said, great, what are you trying to achieve in the meeting? And Sarah would say, well, we're doing it for this and this, and this is the outcome we want, and this is what we're going to do. He'd say, great, I'm going to come back. When are you finishing, by the way? I'm fin we're finishing in an hour, right? I'm coming back at 10 to the hour, and I just want to see what you've achieved. And he'd leave. And he did that in a succession of meetings throughout the day. He very rarely attended the whole meeting. He'd come in at the beginning, he'd maybe throw something in, an idea, but he'd come back at the end. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, what happens to a group of people when you come into a meeting as the senior leader and you say, look, I'm not going to influence your, what you're thinking about, but I am going to come in and hear what you've said. The pressure is kind of on then to say, well, hey, guys, we've got, to, we've got to have a proper meeting here. We've really got to get to the heart of the issue. We've got to come up with some great ideas because... We're going to have to present them back to the leader when the leader comes back. Now, what did it do? It gave, it gave empowerment to people in the room. It delegated authority to them. It made them feel that they were running the meeting and the leader wasn't taking away that from them. But also it gave time back to the leader who could then go away and start to do other things during their day. And the one thing we haven't got as leaders is time. So uh, a couple of other things that came out of the article the leader always left the office at 5.30 because one of the things they want, he wanted to do was set the example that I don't stay later in the office. You know, if you stay till nine at night, people tend to think I've got to stay till nine at night. So he's very aware of that. He used to go home, have tea with his kids and his family and his wife, and then check in a little bit later and do a few emails and things. Now, you could argue the good and the bad of that, but that's the way he did it. So it opened my eyes to the whole question about how do leaders spend their time? How are they efficient? How are they effective? What is, what's the effect of staying in a meeting for the whole time? What's the effect of only staying in the meeting for a short time? So that's where it started, Ben. That's, that's the first time. And I've got a few other things I'll show later, but that's where it started for me. Yeah, okay. And I'm not sure I've read that HBR article. I've, re I've read another about how leaders spend their time uh, a while ago. I suspect I was in my managing director mm -hmm. role. 
they'd looked at a bunch of different leaders, how they spend their time with their people, with their customers, and so on, and how much time they spend doing email, mm. and it's very informative. I found it totally <laughs> unrelatable. I thought, yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's not going to work for me. And so I was kind of stuck with with it. And and if you like, that's the rub of this topic, isn't it? That it ain't going to be the same no. for any two no. leaders out there. I think there. for me, the you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it's the most precious commodity we've got. The thing I like the most about Cotter was, do you, the leader of the business, need to spend all of your two hours in that meeting? That was the, that was the question I think is worth asking leaders. Is it a good use of your time? Because as we know, going back to questions, what's the role of a leader? And when you leave a group of people, you can empower them to come up with more of the answers themselves without you in the room. And it's for you to ask the great questions of them rather than to give them the answers. And the danger is if you're in the room, everyone turns to you and says, what's the answer, Ben? What's the answer, Ian? What's the answer, Rob? Whatever it is, whoever's in that room. So that was the big aha for me reading yep. the Cotter article, because I think that is transferable. You know, I think people can question, do they really need to stay in every meeting that they're invited to attend as a leader? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what are we teaching there? We're teaching everybody to think about how are we using each, each block of time available to us? Uh, are we making it count? It's one of the good things I think I saw during pandemic in in 2020, in the early weeks of Zoomville, when people were, you know, people had square eyes, it was Zoom after Zoom after Zoom, it gets to the end of the day, they're exhausted. And suddenly they realised, this isn't productive, I've got to make yeah. my time count. Yeah, and many people, they mm. they cancelled half of their Zooms. They shortened Zooms, you know, to, to half an hour or 45 minutes. They started building in a sensible break mm -hmm. in between Zooms, back to back. Doesn't make good sense. And, and people did begin thinking about making time count. Mm. Back to where did this originate from? And Ian, you dreamed up this episode with the title, How Do Leaders Spend Their Time?, which we turned into mm. what effective leaders do. And then I added the 168 mm. hours onto the front. I found that interesting, 168 hours in the week. And in the HBR article that got you thinking, your man there was was leaving at five o'clock each day to, to set an example. Yeah, and, and this is maybe one of the first places I go with this. What effective leaders do is they think first about mm -hmm. how they're leading themselves. And of course, that's not a nine to five thing. That's the whole week. That's our every waking hour. And if we include the importance of sleep, mm -hmm. every non-waking hour as, as well. And back to your point of, you know, leadership mm. is contagious. What do we want people to catch? Or oh, that was my line, your point. <laughs> but back to that, you know, I think one, one of the first things that effective leaders do is they do... I mean, work-life balance is dead. I've never liked the term. Uh, I don't think the two do ever balance. So let's not talk about work-life balance. Let's talk about mm -hmm. work-life combination. Effective leaders, they get themselves mm -hmm. an effective work-life combination, one that puts them on their front foot. Because 101, first things first, an effective leader is on his and her front foot. And by being on their own front foot, they're enabling their people yeah. to be on their front foot yeah. too. Show up on your back foot and you're putting your team on your back foot. 
Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, one of the things, you know, in the intro, we talked a bit about happiness. There's a great book by a guy called Hal Elrod called Miracle Morning. I don't know if you've read that one probably a while ago. I think I might have mentioned that ah. to, to you because I did the Miracle Morning every morning mm. for for a number of months. It's brilliant. Achieved so much that I had to stop <laughs> yeah. for a break. I mean, but the concept there is what you were talking about, isn't it? It's basically, you know, you're setting yourself up for your morning and your day by by putting the things that matter to you, put you in the right mindset, put you in the right state. And you do a combination of those before you really leap into the office. That could be yoga, could be meditation, could be blogging could be uh, a bit more strenuous exercise. It's a nice cup of tea. A combination of things. If you think about you're on the practice ground before you get on the pitch, it's kind of setting you up in in the right way. But diving into the subject a bit more, because you mentioned about what do we do during this 168 hours. And I think one of the things that I've done with leaders is to say, okay, so how do you spend that 168 hours exactly? So I draw a circle. And I say, right, divide that circle into a number of pies about how you spend your time as a leader. And so those pies might be strategy, you know, strategic thinking and all those sorts of high level stuff. They might be business development. They might be product development. They might be developing my team. They might be visiting clients and prospects, a bit big chunks of activity and you'd give them a broad percentage of how you're spending your day, your week, you know, your month, kind of quite big picture. And get people to do that and say, do it now, honestly, how you spend yep. your time now. And then I'd say, okay, your business is growing. You know what the vision is. You know where you want to be. You know what your other members of your team are doing. Is that part you've just drawn what your business needs today from you? And now that's a big question because actually people have looked at that and I don't have anyone who said to me, yep, it's exactly that, Ian. It's exactly what I've drawn and I've no need to change. And most people have said to me, do you know what? There's not enough strategic thinking time in there. Going back to this point you mentioned about Zoom where we're we're rushing from Zoom call to Zoom call. You know, in our working lives, we're rushing from meeting to meeting. We're being pulled over here and pulled over there. And what's the one thing leaders need to really do is set the strategic direction, set the vision, motivate people, develop teams, have one-to-ones with people, see critical clients, talk to them, build that relationship. You know, they need to be doing a lot of relationship building, people development, strategic thinking, and often they end up too much in the operational stuff because they get pulled into all this stuff that people want them in. And so I found that really useful to get people to hold the mirror up and say, how am I spending my time, my really important time? And is that what the business really needs of a leader? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we need to give each one of those people a tool. And it's, in my experience, at least, it's a surprisingly rare tool to to see used. And that is the the cousin of the to-do list. It's the not-to-do list. It's the stop-doing list. And every effective leader must yeah, have a stop ben. doing yeah, this. Yeah, and we don't do that enough. We don't think... It, it was back to when I talked about uh, intent at the beginning of the last podcast when I said my intent for 2020 was take control. 
And part of that was to stop doing stuff, which really didn't fit into what I was here to do. And so it's, you're right. It's uh, We think about what we're going to do, but not enough about what we're not going to do. Yeah, and, and to not have a stop doing list. I can't quite remember who said this, so I won't quite do it justice quite as well as they did. But to, but to not have a stop doing mm. list is is a recipe for failure. It guarantees failure. It's a recipe for being out of control because people will always put stuff onto your to-do list yeah, and they won't take stuff off it. So it's only going to go, only going to go one way. Although a great way to do your stop doing list is to open it up to other people and say, Hey, here's my stop yeah, doing list. Yeah. Tell me what I need to put on it. Will yeah. you? And you'll be surprised the look of glee on your colleagues faces and how much they'll put on your list and and then you can look at that list and think yeah, yeah do you know what <clears throat> they're right the other way of using this simple model of the circle and the pies is to say to the person you're doing this with is is that what your leadership team would expect of you in how you spend your time are there elements in that pie that you currently do that they should be doing so is there a delegation opportunity here? Mm -hmm. And the other way of using it beyond that, of course, is to sit down with the whole leadership team openly together and get them all to do it. So you all start critiquing each other on how you're spending your valuable time. And you make sure that if you've got strategic priorities, <laughs> as we've spoken yep. to about before, are you spending enough time in the right places to make these really happen yes and two things there I, I totally agree by the way it's such a useful tool going back a step delegation a question for one-to-ones a question i think should feature regularly frequently maybe not every single one-to-one -one, but perhaps quarterly the question is tell me what i'm doing today that you do better than me and you'd really prefer I stop doing. Mm. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant question. Um, almost identical to what you've said, which is if there's one thing I do that you'd really love to do, what would it be? And it, it's very similar to your question, but it allows yep, somebody to pull it from you, shows their motivation, shows their ambition, rather than you giving it to them. And it kind of flips it round the other way. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, such a simple model but can be really effective with leaders and their teams. Yeah, totally. And I use this approach as well, drawing the circle, how should time be spent? I use the approach as well. And one of the moments that almost always I use it, having worked through the strategy process with a team, and they've got to the point of having their strategic priorities defined, the plan for the year is defined. However they do that, however that looks for them, we're at the point where we know what the plan looks like. Collectively, we know what needs to happen. We're action-oriented. That's a great moment. We know what needs to be achieved. That's a great moment. At this point and in that context, it's an ideal time to draw the circle. And we can do this as a team. It can be a team exercise, single circle, whole team, single circle. How does each one of us need to split our time so that we both lead our people effectively and deliver each of those strategic priorities 
and also take care of anything specific to our individual responsibilities in the business. Whilst we're still in the context of that strategic thinking and having just drawn up the plan, that's a brilliant moment to draw the circle. And then with that circle, we can compare to our current uh, week to week and we can make the, the adjustments It's a really timely moment to do it. It's not prescribed. The team can do this totally in their own language with no constraints whatsoever, other than we've just got clear on what we need to achieve as a team, as a business, and also that there's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a week. Anything else on this big subject of how leaders use their time, Ben, that you want to bring to the podcast today? Yeah, well, that sounds a little bit like we're getting close to to wrapping up. Okay, yeah. Well, I said earlier that I'd read a different HBR article and it was useful. There was good analysis in it, but I just couldn't relate to it. And the the approaches described in there just weren't going to work for me. And that, that kind of stayed with me. And I thought, surely there's got to be a common way of looking at this and coming at this that's going to work for, if not any, most leaders and most leadership situations. And I've kind of chipped away at that. And here's what what I've arrived at. You know, back Mm -hmm. when we recorded Lady Leadership, (laughs) Lady Leadership will be a a good topic for us to do sometime. But but our podcast was not Lady Leadership, it was Lazy Leadership. We were looking for, if it's not Lazy Leadership, what's a single concept that brings together Mm. a good version of leadership, effective leadership or gritty leadership. And the way that I often look at that is... It's the role of the leader Mm -hmm. to create conditions for success. And that's how I look at how a leader should be spending their time. The question is, am I creating conditions for success? And then I've got a little bit of a matrix. Am I creating conditions for success for myself, Mm. for each of the people that report to me, for the team Mm -hmm. or teams around me? for the company, and perhaps for the shareholders as well. So am I creating conditions for success for each of those? And then second of all, it operates on another level as well. Am I creating those conditions for success now, for the current period, for today, for this conversation, for this week, this period? Am I creating those conditions for success for each of those groups now, in the Mm midterm, And also in the long term, I think, you know, we can look at this model and say, how are we spending our time today? And we can get that right. And we can we can do that with our teams and we can create the conditions for success for them and for our organizations. Let's suppose we're growing at 10 percent a year, 15 percent a year, 50 percent a year. But let's suppose we're growing. We know or we've got a good idea that we're going to be this big in a year or 18 months. If we hit our vision, if we achieve our strategic priorities and at 10%, 15%, whatever it is bigger with maybe new products, maybe, you know, new offices, more people, maybe in a new market, maybe having acquired another business at that point in the future, what do we need to be doing? Or with that in mind, how does that change my pie today? 
If memory serves, Ian, you mentioned earlier the idea of mapping the work we'll do during the year. And it got me thinking, actually, I'm a trustee. And in my trustee role, one of the things we do as a board of trustees is we map out our work for the year, the the work of the board of the trustees during the year. And it's really clear we, we check in on uh, strategy at one point and remuneration at another point and so on and it plays out over the year and I think that's another way to to look at this for for all leaders considering the year ahead where will I need to spend my time to create conditions for success at each point during the year and there could be a, a connection to strategy here too we've been talking in other podcasts about strategy and the strategic process. And of course, that plays out quite often over the course of a year. So again, as a leader, where does my attention need to be? How do I need to shape my time at different points during the year? Yep, we need to always think of tomorrow because we're doing today what historically led us up to today. And the danger is we just carry on doing the same thing. You know, Groundhog Day, we come in and do the same broad thing tomorrow. And this is where part of our time has to be to step back and go what do I need to do for tomorrow and that's really important for a leader okay great well let's hope (laughs) to get some more emails it'd be love to get what people are doing maybe they've got some other models maybe they've got some advice maybe they've got some tips maybe we've missed something I'm sure we have that people can come in and tell us about so it'd be great to hear listeners feedback but other than that should we wrap up today yeah I think so so emails I'm at ben at benwales.com you're at ian at ianwindle.com we'd also love reviews on apple podcasts uh, spotify wherever you listen we'd love reviews there we really love it if they're five star but give us reviews there give us feedback we're often posting things on linkedin as well so if you've got a view if you've got an idea comments against the episodes please please do what are we going to be talking about when we get together again ben oh well We'll, we'll be back to our strategy topic soon and an area that we want to unpick is this whole area of getting into motion with strategy turning into action because you know strategy is invisible all we can see is an execution so we've got to get into action so i uh, hope we'll see you all there great to be with you today ben good to be with you ian see you in two weeks bye bye